From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. As we head into 2023, some big changes are ahead for both Oregon and Washington after a historic election this November. Meanwhile, we are still seeing major problems that are carrying over into the new year. Tonight, we're taking a look back at the year in news and what's ahead in 2023. Thank you for joining us here on Straight Talk. I'm Ashley Korslin in for Laurel Porter. I'm joined today by members of news outlets in Oregon and Washington. Thank you all for being here. We have Betsy Hammond, the politics and education editor at the Oregonian down on the end there. Betsy, thanks for being here. We have Lillian Monjo Hughes, the health and justice editor at Oregon Public Broadcasting. Then we have Aaron Mesh with Willamette Week, the news editor at Willamette Week. And finally, next to me, Craig Brown, the editor at the Columbian. Thank you all. We're getting a little cozy here on the table here, but thanks for being here today. Um, let's dive into some of the big stories from this past year, 2022. Perhaps the biggest and most recent, of course, was the election. In Oregon, this was the first election for governor that featured three women candidates on the ballot. And Betsy, you called this one the most competitive governor's race since around 2010. Uh, why was this so memorable to you? Why was it so surprising? Well, I, you had three factors that you've never had before in modern times in an Oregon governor's race all coming together. And first, of course, as you mentioned, the president of a third candidate, a credible, well-financed, unaffiliated candidate for governor really made things interesting in, in the case of Betsy Johnson. And then there was the money, $70 million in ads. I know we were all wishing we could see even more of them. Uh, <laughs> that was almost twice the previous record. And then finally, we had polls um, near the election time that showed the Republican candidate, Christine Drazen, ahead. She was always within the margin of error, but you know, that's, right. that's, that doesn't, not, not politics as usual in Oregon. Of course, in the end, Tina Kotek, the Democrat, prevailed easily, comfortable 65,000 uh, vote margin, mm -hmm. but it was uh, historic and quite a ride. Quite a year. Uh, obviously, we all know this national news outlets were really focused on that race, as well as a race out of Southwest Washington. Craig, I'm going to ask you about this one because we had uh, a big upset in Washington's third congressional district, and that was where Democrat Marie Glusenkamp Perez uh, flipped the district, beating Trump backed Republican challenger. Joe Kent. Did this surprise you in any way? And, and what does this tell us about voters in Clark County? Well, it did surprise me. I thought that uh, uh, the conservative uh, uh, values in Southwest Washington would end up winning the day. But it turned out, I think, that uh, the Trump uh, uh, endorsement was, and uh, Joe Kent being a very conservative person was just a little bit too much, especially in Clark County, where he uh, won by 20, or where uh, Camp Perez beat him by 22,000 votes. Mm -hmm. So district-wide, he ended up winning by only 2,000 and some. So uh, I think Clark County is a little more moderate uh, than what uh, people had thought. Now, Oregon also had a district flip after um, some redistricting had been done. Central Oregon's District 5 particularly went to Republican Lori Chavez de Reamer. Aaron, what do these results really tell us about the state of the Republican Party in, in Oregon and also the Democratic Party as well? Well, I think Republicans should thank their lucky stars that the Democrats made a series of tactical errors in that race, which, depending on who you ask, you could say that they nominated a candidate who was unpopular with the President of the United States, for that matter, and with the party or maybe that they received a lack of national support. Overall, what does that say? I think that you saw Republicans with an enormous amount of headwinds in this election, and they didn't see very many good results out of it. 
uh, the amount of money that Phil Knight spent on the governor's race to not really get that close, either with uh, the independent candidate, Betsy Johnson, or with the, with the Republican, not that great a year for them. And there had really been so much talk about this red wave, uh, not just in the Northwest, but also nationally, that really didn't come to fruition, So, um, which is interesting. However, on the other side, Oregon's Democrats, they did lose the supermajority in both the Senate and the House. Um, so Lillian, what impact might that have on trying to get legislation through in the next legislative session? Well, you know, they've had enough members in both chambers to get um, anything through that they wanted, and that's especially gone to their ability to raise taxes without any Republican votes. And I think that ability will really be hampered um, going forward here. If they want to raise taxes, they'll need a Republican vote, and that's a pretty big deal. Um, for some of their other legislative priorities, it's less clear that it'll make a huge difference. But for those things where you need three-fifths, it's going to be a significant change. I want to take some time to talk specifically about some uh, of the local Portland races. Um, uh, Betsy, this one's going to be for you because we're going to talk about the Renee Gonzalez versus uh, Joanne Hardesty City Council race, which was one that a lot of people had their eyes on in the election. Um, the Oregonian actually mapped out which neighborhoods vote, voted for which candidates. And Betsy, what did you learn from that data? Well, first of all, the overall picture was that, unfortunately for Joanne Hardesty, she was the only member of the Portland City Council on the ballot this fall. There was tremendous frustration with all Portland leadership and with the whole Portland City Council, and she was the one incumbent who voters could take out. So Renee Gonzalez did well everywhere, but it was interesting that he particularly did well in two rather disparate parts of the city, the affluent, relatively affluent uh, west side, but then also east of 205 in the um, more heavily uh, people of color uh, communities, poverty communities that Joanne Hardesty had pitched many of her policies to benefit, but Renee Gonzalez did very well. Erin, what will you be particularly paying attention to with the new council as they start to work together in 2023? Anything that stands out to you? Well, the clock's already ticking on them, right? Because of charter reform, True. they're all lame ducks immediately. Right. They've really got two years to try to like get their house in order before we see an enormous change. And given that it's a fairly conservative city council, by Portland standards at least, and given the possibility of a fairly radically leftist city council in two years, mm -hmm. I would imagine you see them like sort of building little walls against that. Interesting. Um, and you mentioned the charter reform, the change in government. Uh, Lily, and I want to talk to you about this because Portland voters um, voted in favor of changing the, the way that Portland government works with the charter reform measure. Do you think, why do you think that voters voted in favor of that, of, of totally changing things up? I mean, I think they were ready for a change. I think people were ready for an overhaul. There are a lot of elements in that new charter. I have yet to hear anybody say they know exactly how that's all going to play out. <laughs> that's um, a good question, right? Yes, but yeah. it'll be fascinating to watch. And I think for a lot of voters, it was a calculated risk that what's happening now doesn't feel like it's working to them, and they were ready to see something totally different. I want to get a little engagement going, because before we started the show taping, Aaron, you said you might be the only person in the area who thinks Portland maybe didn't need uh, to change things up. Why do you think that is? I'm sure there are more people than just you, but let's talk about that a bit. I think if we could elect a mayor who could organize a three-car funeral, we might be in better shape. Oh, anybody have a response to that? I think the question of having individual commissioners run individual bureaus and the fiefdoms that that creates, the loyalty mm -hmm. to a particular bureau rather than citywide concerns may be illegitimate problem that needed to be solved. The rest of America runs, big cities run in a different fashion. So. In a different, with a different structure. And I think people are really ready for those geographic districts. I mean, that starts to feel a little crazy that everything's citywide, and we know that's affected the makeup of the 
you know, of the council for years now. And so having the geographic districts will make a difference. Craig, you, um, to throw you into the mix, you're over in Southwest Washington. You don't really have a, a dog in the show here, but like. Oh, we do though, because we're part of the Portland media market and we're sure. over here and, and things. And uh, over in Southwest Washington, it's like looking at a car crash. You can't uh, help not to look, but you know it's tragic. So we just wonder why it took so long for Portland and voters to make that change. Okay. We have a little bit of a spicy crowd here today. Uh, let's talk about where Portland is today. The reputation um, has really taken a hit. I, I think that's an understatement to many. Um, over the past few years, city leaders are really trying to kind of revamp that image, attract people back to downtown. Um, Betsy, what do you think Portland needs most? Where do we start with fixing that reputation? Well, I think that there are so many things that need fixing and it's really hard to do. And some of, you know, the pandemic, uh, those are things that are out control the, the mm -hmm. urge to work from home yep. uh, but that's why you saw the mayor yesterday announced that city workers will be required to come back to downtown I mean our polling showed that people are worried about you know three things homelessness trash and crime and I think that the city is focused on trying to um, address those things mm -hmm. they've said that before and it hasn't happened so we'll see. Do, do you think, does anyone here want to weigh in? Do you think voters um, have faith that it will change in the next few years? There's a lot of talk of how do we change it and what we're going to do. Well, it'll change because the government's changing. So <laughs> whether it will change for the better or for the worse, I think is an open question. I, I don't know who's putting money on one or the other. Yeah, there. okay. Um, on, on the no, uh, topic of homelessness, Aaron, let's talk about Mayor Ted Wheeler's uh, big plan he's unveiled in the last few weeks um, that includes banning camping and organizing six sanctioned campsites. That will be very large. Um, how do you think this is going to go? Well, you have to be a little bit impressed with the determination of his chief aide, Sam Adams, whose plan this really is. We revealed mm -hmm. back in, I think, February that this was uh, Sam's plan for, uh, for these large-scale camps. It's difficult to imagine how on a practical level any of them would work, and I'd be willing to put down $5 that none of them ever open. At all? Yeah. Okay. I know you'll be you'll be on that one watching that very closely. Well, now I owe everybody $5, so yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's true. I'll be calling you for the money. Um, Craig, a, a pretty big contrast if, when you're looking in southwest Washington and Vancouver. The downtown area, before we get to homelessness, downtown mm -hmm. area really booming, though. What are you hearing from people about perhaps not wanting to venture into Portland? Uh, if you live in Clark County, what are your thoughts on well, that? I think we're feasting a little bit on uh, Portland's ballets uh, that way, so we probably had a little bit of luck with the timing in that we were able to redevelop a, a waterfront that uh, uh, has been a 10-year effort but turned out to be uh, redeveloped and opening just at the right time. So there's been tremendous investment over there. We're becoming a lot more sophisticated. It used to be you'd come across the bridge and the thing you'd see is that old dilapidated red lion and, and you look now and gee, there's a skyline mm -hmm. uh, down there. There's all kinds of restaurants and shops and two fancy hotels. It's uh, uh, becoming a different place. Even the city center has changed a lot. Uh, so um, they used to talk about downtown revitalization, but I think it's vitalization. I think there's more to downtown Vancouver than there's ever been in the city's history. And what are you hearing from um, your readers or people you, you, you know that your um, reporters have interviewed when it comes to the perception of Portland, whether this is true or not, um, about how safe people feel to go into Portland? Well, I think people are 
some people are still feeling uh, nervous about coming into Portland, uh, especially the downtown area. But I also think that they are finding more options closer to home and the sales tax isn't as big a barrier as it was. There was a report just in the last week about sales tax, le sales tax leakage uh, in Clark County that showed that that had decreased uh, quite a bit. So uh, it shows that people are buying more items in Clark County and less in Portland. And then on the topic of homelessness, Vancouver has been fairly quick to implement solutions. There are uh, two, you called them pretty successful, the safe, uh, safe stay villages, the homeless villages. Right. Right. A third has been proposed in downtown. Right. Um, what do you, why do you think that Vancouver seems to be excelling in this area? Well, I think that they were able to uh, use the $42 million from a, a levy that Vancouver voters approved in uh, 2016 to uh, for homelessness and affordable housing. So uh, they've done that with the money. They've uh, uh, helped uh, construct 1,000 affordable housing units. Uh, they've helped 1,600 families with rent assistance with this money. So the big question to me is, are Vancouver voters gonna renew it when it comes up in February uh, for a renewal? The city council has uh, increased the size of the levy substantially. I don't know if Vancouver voters are gonna say, we like this, it's been working, or this is too much, it's beyond the tipping point for me. Does anyone mm. have let's, any thoughts let's, on this? Let's not overdo the success story here. I mean, it's, e it's easy. Still homelessness. It's easier to solve homelessness in the suburbs. Mm -hmm. uh, Beaverton and Hillsborough look real nice too. Mm -hmm. So you have an urban center sure. with uh, a number of people who cannot find affordable housing and rents continue to rise, evictions are up. Yeah, there's there's reason to think that uh, I'm just saying let's not like celebrate Vancouver success. Yeah, sure. That's no. a fair point. Um, uh, we aren't having as many troubles, but on the other hand, uh, so our office is right downtown. Uh, so I often have somebody sleeping outside my window during the day. Anybody have any thoughts, Lily? Well, yeah, I mean, not to downplay the really significant problems we're having in our downtown and also with, you know, rising crime rates and homelessness, but these are also problems across the country right now. I mean, every major city True. in the U.S. is dealing with these issues, um, low occupancy in their downtowns because of all the major shifts that have happened because of a global pandemic. So right. not to say we don't have real problems in Portland that need to be worked on, but we're not the only ones um, trying to face these issues. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. That's a good a note to end on. We're going to take a break, but when we come back, we're taking a look at some of the most memorable coverage from this year, from the Oregonians reckoning with the paper's past racist coverage to an Afghan refugee family settling into a new life in Clark County. We'll be right back. And welcome back to Straight Talk. We are taking a look back at this year's news as we finish out 2022. And we wanted to take some time to highlight some unique coverage. I'm joined today by editors from The Oregonian, OPB, Willamette Week, and The Columbian, who all have some really special projects that your teams have put in a lot of time over the last year. So Betsy, I want to start with you. Um, the Oregonian really tackled an interesting project this year to dig into your own paper, The Oregonian's uh, History of Racist Coverage. And this project, uh, Publishing pre Prejudice revealed that founder Henry Pittick allowed for coverage by editor uh, Harvey Scott that really reinforced white supremacy in Oregon. Why decide to look back through this this series and, and look back at this uh, at this coverage? Well, we were really inspired by the racial reckoning that followed the murder of George Floyd, and we're not the first uh, newsroom to 
really take a critical look at our own coverage. I think what we expected was to find that we reflected the times, that we reinforced the positions of folks in power, and really what the team who dug into this found was uh, more horrifying, which was that, um, as you mentioned, Harvey, Henry Pittock and Harvey Scott, the editor, cheerleaded for um, racist and um, policies. They, they led the way. They apologized for lynching. They uh, urged for Jim Crow coverage. They, through editorials, but also news coverage, mm -hmm. um, fought the giving women and people of color the right to vote. Um, there was a lot not to be proud of. They crusaded for non-unanimous juries, which we, as the PAC, um, project pointed out carried through with racist implications until just a couple of years ago and then we also dug deep into our coverage in the 1940s and how we shamefully papered over the the true horrors of the mass incarceration of Japanese Americans in in Oregon and um, you know for that did cause our editor-in-chief to issue an unreserved apology for what our newsroom helped Due to our state, yeah, the, and current editor Therese Bottomley did issue that apology. What what uh, was the the reaction from your readers to this series? We were bracing for a lot of blowback, mostly people being horrified at what we had done, and then also people objecting to us being maybe too woke and trying to look at long ago actions mm -hmm. through a 2020 lens. And we were really um, gratified that. Um, most of the reactions seem to be appreciation that we really did take a very frank look at what we had done and um, I think for the apology and for the tone that was struck about understanding the harm that had happened. Well, Betsy, thank you for telling us about that series. Aaron Willamette, we documented uh, vacant buildings all across Portland. This is a series called Chasing Ghosts. Uh, Tell us about this and why was this work important to you? I'm so excited about this project. It's a weekly column we put out where we look at one vacant property every single week and try to explain to readers why it's vacant. Uh, the engagement we've gotten from our readership on this has been tremendous. Probably the most uh, interested readers have been in a series we've done in since I've been at it. Why do you think that is? I think it's because people look in their own neighborhoods and they have mysteries that they pass by every single day and it's like part of their daily fabric of their life and they just wonder why would this building stand uh, empty for 30 years or why did this restaurant disappear? I loved it. What happened? What went wrong? And is there anything ever going to happen in my neighborhood? And to see that connection of like deep business reporting and the everyday lives of people about what they see on the street, it really connected with people. And this is an ongoing series right now? We'll keep it going in 2023. Okay, wonderful. Uh, Craig, another ongoing series the Columbian has been working on. You're following uh, the journey of an Afghan refugee family. They've resettled in Clark County and you've been following their journey. You can see uh, the family here for, for about nine or ten months now. Right. What have you learned? Tell us a little bit about the family and this coverage. Well this is the uh, Chronicles the Aziz poor family. Uh, so uh, reporter Scott Hewitt and our photo editor Amanda Cowan have been spending time periodically with them uh, throughout their uh, time in the United States. They're really at a critical juncture right now so when the uh, Taliban seized power in Afghanistan the husband was in Germany and uh, uh, at graduate school earning his master's degree he's still stuck in Germany oh. the family's here in Vancouver they can't get reunited so there's some question about whether he'll be able to stay in Germany or will get deported back to Afghanistan and the family meanwhile is still waiting for the paperwork uh, uh, to uh, certify their status as refugees in the United States so it's a, at a real critical uh, juncture. So not only are they uh, learning the American culture, 
so um, some of them didn't speak very good English, so they're learning a new language. So they have this uh, undercurrent of what's going to happen to our family. So it's been a, a really interesting project. We're going to publish another installment uh, uh, on December 18th is the plan. Okay. So it'll be coming up pretty soon. All right, thank you, Craig. Um, Lillian, OPB has covered the threat to salmon in the Northwest pretty extensively. Um, what does focusing on salmon really tell us about the environment and what we should all um, you know, be doing better right now? Right, well, it tells us that we're running out of time um, to do something about salmon. It's, it's, it's well past time. I was talking to Tony Schick, who's been one of the lead investigative reporters on this project, and I said to him, you know, did we miss our window? Have we missed the window yet? And he said, well, it's getting narrow. It's like when you're you're trying to get your kid ready for school and they say, are we gonna be late? And you're like, well, not if we leave right now, but where are your shoes and where's your backpack? So um, we really need to do something immediately to make a difference. Um, some of the things that can be done that were identified through our reporting was um, the removal of the dams, which is very controversial, maximizing the flow of water past the dams, um, reintroducing salmon in places where they've become extinct, and then also changing the power structure around who manages salmon. Um, it's been managed by BPA, the Bonneville Power Administration, for years now, and um, that's in violation in some cases of a lot of treaty rights of tribes who are supposed to have more, more management control. Um, you know, the, the salmon series, we all think of salmon as such a delicious part of living in the Northwest, but this is about people and, and a way of life that's been sacrificed to make um, the rest of our lives easier. We can, sure. we can flip on our lights, and that's on the backs of people who've always lived here and have made their living yeah. from the river. One other project that OPB is working on is the Class of 2025 project. Quickly, yes. uh, give us a rundown Yeah, just that. really quickly. I mean, yeah. that project is d near and dear to my heart because I'm a longtime education reporter, so... Um, Rob Manning, our education reporter, started following these kids in kindergarten. These are children who are now in 10th grade. And our education reporter now, Liz Manning, is still working. Rob's still involved in the project as an editor. And they are, she's in the, in the midst already of um, videoing their, you know, their 10th year. And we're going to have a documentary that comes out at the end of it. But we will have followed the kids the whole time. And this is the class where the, um, the goal was set of 100% graduation rate. So we'll have a chance to see in a few years here how close we get. And Betsy, I do have a little time to circle back to you because one of the big topics facing Portland right now that we did not discuss today is gun violence. Um, and the Oregonian has a, a series called The Safest Place that really explores the disproportionate impact of gun violence on certain populations. Tell us about this series and what people can learn. It's gonna launch on Sunday and um, it is a very rich, textured, sad story going looking at an alternative high school that um, has been affected by 30 of the homicides the young people and their families their neighbors um, these are young people mostly of color who have been very very directly impacted mm -hmm. in very sorrowful ways by this slaughter um, mostly by gunfire and our Journalists, um, both photographers, videographers, and reporters have just spent a lot of time really listening, and it's going to be a very rich, textured um, series of stories that will um, just, I think, bring the human side of the toll sure. that this has taken. Sounds very profound and impactful. Yes, I mean, Some you're going to love it. Okay, we look forward to reading that. Um, I want to, we have a little bit of time, I want to go down the line here and maybe each of you share something you think um, people should be paying more attention to as we close out what's been a really difficult year, 2022, and as we head into 2023. Putting you on the spot a little bit, Craig, let's start with you. 
I think people need to uh, pay attention to uh, housing prices. So that's going to be a big uh, factor in uh, solving so many problems that we have, uh, especially homelessness. So uh, they're starting to trend downward in Seattle. So, uh, but are rents going to get any cheaper? There's a lot of new housing under construction, but it looks like it's uh, still going to be unaffordable. So I think that's a, a big thing to watch. That would solve a lot of our community problems. And quickly, Aaron. I think the interconnectedness between the work from home era and what our downtown core looks like is yep. going to be a really interesting conflict. And you've seen that with the mayor trying to get people to come back to work at City Hall. You're going to see it with big businesses and the Standard Building and elsewhere. It's going to be a, lot a problem. A lot of push and pull there. Mm -hmm. Lillian? I think we should be paying very close attention to our health care system throughout the state. Um, hospitals are overburdened right now, but that's there's there's this current respiratory virus crisis, but part of the reason they're so overburdened is this ongoing nursing shortage. I also think Measure 111, which didn't get that much attention, is really potentially going to change the way the state um, decides it needs to insure people, and that's going to be a huge And shift. Betsy, quickly, you can close out the show today. I'm going <laughs> to echo, Craig, that housing and the creation of 30,000 housing units, what, the, what are the barriers, what policy changes can be made mm -hmm. to make that happen, super important. And then, as the education editor me says, the kids are suffering. The kids had tremendous learning loss from the pandemic, and there needs to be more urgency about all the tricks we can bring out to help them catch back up to where they need to be. Well, thank you all for being here and for all the really important work you're doing in our communities here in the Northwest. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to us today. And thank you for watching Straight Talk. Remember, you can get Straight Talk as a podcast. Just search for KGW Straight Talk wherever you listen to podcasts. We'll see you next week when we're meeting with a new group of women elected to Congress in Oregon and Washington. Have a good week.